Lord, I pray that you would help us to be more sensitized now than ever before about our sin. That, Lord, we would keep short sin accounts with you. That, Lord, we would continue to gaze upon the one who died for us. And we would continue to glean from him life. Lord Jesus, you told us what eternal life is. It is to know you in the here and now and then in the hereafter as well. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death for us. I thank you for your life for us. I thank you, Lord, that even now you are raised and you are exalted and you're at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning. One day you're going to return. We look forward to that day. And I pray now, Father, that as we open your precious word, that you'll open up our hearts, open up our minds, help us understand what we need to know, and help us to understand how to apply this to our lives. And we'll give you thanks and praise in advance for what you will do in Jesus' name. Well, today, got some good news for you. Today we begin the second half of Deuteronomy. We're done with the first half. Isn't that great? And I've had a blast so far, and I hope you have too, just hearing the amazing truths that Moses boldly speaks concerning Israel's Lord, who saved them by a mighty hand. You know, my prayer has been and continues to be that we would see the Lord for who he really is and that we would, with an increasing measure, remain loyal to the one who remains the same yesterday and today forever. Now, we're in the middle of Torah time, where Moses teaches Israel Yahweh's commands, his statutes, and his laws. And as remember, though the word Torah appears in English translations as the word law, it actually means teaching, as in teaching the ways of Yahweh to his people. The Lord is their vastly superior king, their suzerain. He is their savior, the ever faithful one. And having delivered them, he established his covenant, his treaty with them. And as his people, Yahweh through his prophet Moses teaches Israel his ways, which are far superior to the ways of the nations surrounding Israel. And as Israel lives out the ways of the Lord before the pagans, this should serve as a powerful witness to them. And ideally, they would want to turn away from the gods that they're worshiping and want to adopt Yahweh as their Lord. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been exposed to many rules that Moses proclaimed and explained to his people. You know, rules about the feasts, for example, celebrating God's goodness to them. Statutes reminding Israel that they are special, set apart for the Lord, even down to the most mundane matters of even what to eat. For what does the scripture say? Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And who can forget the laws concerning the Shemitah, where they were to demonstrate open-handed generosity about the material possessions toward one another. You know, things which God provided them, and he ultimately owns them anyway. He's the maker. He is the provider of all things. All things really are his. And of course, throughout Moses' teaching of God's ways to his people, a major theme is continually put out there. It's a major drumbeat throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy and even through the Old Testament. It is loyalty to Yahweh. The foundation upon which this was built was summed up in the first three commands of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. In a phrase, don't commit idolatry. 
Be faithful to Yahweh. He is Israel's husband. They were to remain true to him and to him alone. And that brings us to today's passage. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 1 to 22. It's found on page 179 in your few Bibles, if you need that number. And as it has become our pattern over the past several weeks, we're going to tackle the entire chapter today, all 22 verses. I'm going to enlist a little help also. You're not going to hear me droning on and on only. I've asked my beloved to help me a little bit. And she's going to actually read the portion that deals with the horrific issue of occultic practices, which the Lord absolutely forbids. So I gave her the hard work. So So let me give you a little direction about where we're going today. In verses 1 to 8, we will talk a little bit about the priests. If we're familiar with the way the Lord had set things up, we know that the Lord set aside the tribe of Levi to oversee the religious duties that he required the nation to perform. And then in verses 9 to 14, we're going to again touch on Moses' absolute prohibition concerning occult practices. And then verses 15 to 22, we're going to see Moses dealing with the issue of the prophets as in how to tell the difference between one who is phony and the genuine article. And we will also see him make a prediction himself that the Lord will raise up, in Moses' words, a prophet just like me from among yourselves. And so I'm going to give you the gist of this passage today, and that means we're not going to go into much depth with this. But I am going to have us spend a lot of time concerning the applications, and these applications are far-reaching for our lives today, believe it or not, priests and prophets. But let me give you just a little bit of a tease here concerning the applications. Every one of us who knows Christ as our Lord and Savior, we serve the Lord as priests and as prophets. And of course, we are to avoid the occult practices like the spiritual plague that they are. And so in other words, this Old Testament passage has direct application to us in our day. And so that said, let's get going. As I mentioned, Moses deals with how Israel is to treat the priests in verses 1 to 8. Now I want to read three of these verses to give some important things about the priests and how the, the people were to treat them. The other verses are about details, about what the people were to provide for the priests. And I'm going to sum that up as well. And so verses 1, 2, and 5 read this way. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers kind of repeating that here. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Now, let me point out here what may appear to be the Lord giving Levi an unfavorable treatment. He's treated them unfairly. See, these verses plainly say that the Lord excluded only the tribe of Levi from receiving an inheritance of land. The Lord promised to give all the other tribes huge parcels of real estate to cultivate, to settle down in, to establish themselves. And once settled in the land, each tribe was to go from being wanderers in the desert to being landowners, just like that. Now, some tribes would inherit land with mountains, 
and others would have rivers in them. Some would have land that they would be able to grow bumper crop after bumper crop, year after year. And some would even settle next to the Mediterranean Sea with the sky being the limit to them and their trading and all those sorts of things. Every tribe would experience some of this, all except for Levi. Now, Levi get anything? Yeah, he got something. So what did they get as their inheritance? God. Only God. No more and no less. Now imagine a conversation, listening in on the leaders between Judah and Levi, for example, when they would get to the promised land. You might hear something like this. Hey, Jude, what did the Lord give you for your inheritance? And Judah would say, an amazing piece of land. Mount Zion for starters. And what about you, Brother Levi? And Levi's answer, we inherited God. Now, how do you think that conversation would continue? What would you say if you were Levi? What would you say if you were Judah? It's kind of awkward, wouldn't it? And so comparatively, which inheritance is better? The land or the Lord? Now, there's a powerful lesson here in and of itself, but we need to go on. So just think about those things. But why Levi anyway? Why did Levi seem to be singled out by the Lord? Levi wasn't the firstborn. It was Reuben. He was like third in line. So what made him special? There are two reasons. First of all, first and foremost, the Lord chose Levi. That's it. He just chose him sovereignly, plain and simple, chose him to be priests, his lineage. Just as the Lord chose Judah sovereignly as the family through which Messiah would come. In the same way, the Lord chose Levi's tribe to take care of Israel's religious things. Second, Levi showed great zeal for the things of God. Now, if you remember the story, Exodus chapter 32, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. It is in the aftermath of the horrific idolatrous events the golden calf. Remember the story. The anger of the Lord was white hot against his people. And justice was on the way. Moses came down from the mountaintop. He broke the tablets of the law at the foot of the mountain. And he called out to Israel and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And who came to Moses' side? It was Levi. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. And then in verses 27 to 29 of Exodus, we find this. He, as Moses said to them, thus says the Lord of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. They were slain. And Moses said, today, sons of Levi, you have been ordained. You've been set apart from the rest of the nation for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. In short, Levi didn't play. 
Their hearts were in tune with the holiness of God. And in their desire to see God glorified, even at the cost of the lives lost, is what put Levi in the position for the Lord to trust them with his sacred things. But that would prove to be a full-time job. See, no time to care for the ground, to grow the crops, to take care of the animals, and so much more of what is going to happen with the rest of the tribes. And this is why the Lord told the people through Moses, provide for the Levites. As it turns out, the people were to provide for the Levites the best of the offerings. For Levi was to receive what Israel gave to the Lord as their offering. The best of the sacrifices, the best of the meats, the best of all the things they were to be given to the Levites. The people were to give the offerings in the towns where the Levites lived because the Levites lived among the people. They weren't sequestered off somewhere. And they were also to be given at the place, the corporate worship center that they were going to build when they were actually going to get into the land. And we know that place now as Jerusalem. And so the lesson is clear. God's saints are to care for their spiritual leaders. As the Apostle Paul said as much, In Galatians 6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And as an aside, I'm grateful for the way that you guys take care of Kitty and me. You know, you guys have provided for us uh, enough of a supplement to make ends meet so that all of our bills are paid. And we praise God for that in, in large measure because our bills are paid because it's your generosity. So thank you for that. We appreciate that. And so now, Let's turn our attention to the next part of of the chapter, verses 9 to 14. And we're going to hear about the horrendous occultic practices that they were to avoid like the plague. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. What a horrid list. Do you agree? God called all of these things and those who practice them abominations. See, the abominations were not only the acts that were done, but it was also God considered the people who performed those acts as abominations as well. You know, so much for the notion that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That's not what he's saying right here. No, there are some things that turns God's stomach, as it were. But what is an abomination? How do we describe it? How do we define it? But one dictionary entry has it this way. Abomination means to abhor something. And to abhor is to harbor strong feelings of dislike and aversion toward it. It is almost always accompanied with the need to 
separate oneself from that which is abhorred. And in this case, what God abhors is his people consulting with pagan gods of the nations in order to know and manipulate and determine their future. That's what divination, that's what these occultic practices are all about. See, God is the only one who knows the end from the beginning. The gods of the nations do not. God's people are to stay away from all of that foolishness. Now, occult practices were very common back in the day, and they're also very common in our day as well. Think about astrology, horoscope readings. I call them horoscopes. People who are committed to this, they ordered their lives around which sign they were born under. And this, they say, determines their personality and their general outlook on life and maybe even predicting the future. Now, believe it or not, I came across this. Merriam-Webster has a website, and on their website, they list no less than 30 ways to tell the future. <laughs> For example, ways like seromancy, where one can predict the future by the way figures form as wax melts on candles. And if you're into food, which I think pretty much all of us are. How about oomancy, where the shape of the egg white as it cooks is believed to offer clues about the future. <laughs> the, the links we will go, won't we? But what do these practices do? They tempt the practitioner to place their trust in unseen evil forces. You know, one of the results of the fall is that we have an insatiable desire to know things, don't we? Especially to know things, how they're going to turn out. For example, if we're in the middle of a health crisis and it is possible to know with 100% accuracy what the outcome would be, wouldn't we want to know that? And we would want to know that, especially if the one going through the health crisis is our closest loved one. Divination, which is the blanket term for all these things that we just talked about, holds a strong attraction for multiplied millions of people but the Lord wants us to trust him by faith. He doesn't want us to try to manipulate the future. See, he alone knows what's best. He alone is good. He alone is all-knowing. So let's not waste our valuable time around these things and doing these things that result in our own destruction. So we heard Moses in instructions about how to treat the Levites who serve as priests. We also heard about the occult practices that turns God's stomach. And now let's see what the Lord has to say about prophets. This is found in verses 15 to 22. So follow along as I read. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at, the, at Horeb on the day of the assembly, as in Mount Sinai, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know 
the word that the Lord has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it, regarding prophets or those who presume to speak for God? And the, and the bar, the mark, is 100% accuracy. Think about all the so-called prophets in our world today. How accurate are they? Far less than 100%, I would guess. See, as many of us know, a prophet's task is really twofold. To the one who purports to speak for God, it's twofold. First, and the most common way of being a prophet and how a prophet functions is to simply tell the truth to others about the Lord and his ways. For example, every time somebody comes up here on Sunday morning and tells you what God says in his word accurately, that person is speaking in the role of a prophet. And the second way the prophet functions is to, indeed, as we think oftentimes the prophet, is to predict the future. And it is relatively easy for us to know whether God has spoken through this person, right? Because if the thing comes to pass, we know that God has spoken through him. If it doesn't, God's people are to reject it out of hand. But with that said, we need to also think about something else Moses had already talked about in chapter 13. Uh, chapter 13, 1 to 3 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let's go after other gods that you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, just because something comes to pass does not necessarily mean that the prophet is speaking in the name of the Lord. It must adhere to truth. See, we must listen carefully to what the prophet says in order to evaluate it. Their responsibility, as far as that goes, lies with us. We must try to understand what he's really saying, and then compare it with the truth. Is this a test, or is this the truth? We need to figure this out. This requires us to know the truth, his written word. This requires us to know the Lord. And now in verse 15, though, Moses acts in the role of a prophet in prediction mode. And Moses basically says this, this is how you can tell, Israel, if I'm a true prophet. First, Yahweh is going to raise up a prophet who is a direct descendant of one of the tribes of Israel. And you shall listen to him. And second, this member of the nation of Israel will speak God's word. Every word this prophet will speak will carry the full authority of Yahweh. That's what Moses is saying here. This is how you can tell him a prophet if this person arises. Now, was Moses correct? Did a prophet arise from Israel? I think so. Let me give you two quotes from the one who claimed to fit this bill. In John 15, 15, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Same thing as the father putting words in Jesus' mouth when he spoke them. In John 8, 28, Jesus said this to his opponents. When you've lifted up the son of man, and what does that mean? Crucified him. Then you will know that I am he, 
and I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak, what? Just as my Father taught me. The words of Yahweh are in the mouth of Jesus. Now, time fails us to even begin to list how completely and perfectly Jesus, direct descendant of Judah, according to the flesh, fills Moses' prediction that the prophet that Yahweh will send actually happened. Now, Jesus is the link between God's people whom Moses taught and us, God's people in the 21st century. As I mentioned, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And is especially true today. In this place right now, only things have gotten even more grand and even more glorious than the days of Israel. See, God has placed in his church both priests and prophets. And who are these priests and prophets? The short answer is, every one of us who know Christ as the Lord and Savior, we are priests and we are prophets. Every one of us. Now, you might find that kind of weird because, you know, there are places in New Testament that talks about God has gifted certain people as prophets. But we all function as priests and we all function as prophets, every one of us. Now, we all know that it's God's will that we become like Jesus. Isn't that true? No matter what we go through in life, no matter where we are, no matter what happens to us, God has one goal for us as Christians. We are to become just like Jesus in our character. This is what we all signed up for, right? To be like Jesus. And if you haven't, you may need to reevaluate why you become a Jesus follower. We want to become like Jesus. This is his will for us. And so in a question, in the days of his ministry, what was Jesus known for? He was known for miracles, yes. He was, he was known for preaching the gospel. He was known for afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. He was teaching and training his disciples to carry on his work after he would die, rise again, and, and return back to the Father's right hand. But I find it very significant that the disciples rarely asked Jesus about how to do stuff. They were learners. Certainly, they watched him do things. But there was something that the disciples practically begged Jesus to train them in. And what was it? It was prayer. It was prayer. They said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And what did he do? He taught them to pray. How he wanted them to accompany him in this. Now, it's no secret that the Lord's life was marked by prayer. That's true. And the greatest of all his recorded prayers in Scripture is found in John 17. Now, this is commonly known as Jesus' great high priestly prayer. This prayer is the epitome of spiritual power. If you haven't read through it or prayed through it lately, let me recommend it to you. And I can't recommend it to you highly enough. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Now, if we want to be like Jesus, then our lives need to be marked by prayer. See, Jesus is our high priest. And guess what that makes us as his followers? Little priests, as it were. So what is a priest? And we might be thinking, what's a priest? Might think of like other religions like Catholics or whatever. And what's a priest? What's a priest do? Who is he? The short answer is a priest is one who represents the Lord to people 
and represents people to the Lord. Priests intercede for others and immerse themselves in the ways of God. So if Jesus is our high priest and we're to be like him, how do we carry that out? I don't know about you, but I can't die for somebody. Can you? Jesus did. We can't die for them, but we can pray for them. We can't die for them, but we can die to ourselves as we pray for them as well. See, the spiritual fact of life is this. Christians cannot exempt themselves from the role that we play as priests. Now, that's a glorious thing, though. We are priests according to Scripture. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 9, the apostle tells us that we are part of a royal priesthood. We are part of a holy priesthood. He mentioned this twice in these verses. And as such, as priests, part of the priesthood, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who saved us. These two things, as priests, we do this. Now, in the book, Power Through Prayer, author E.M. Bounds, this man is just so godly, it's amazing, just spirituality oozes out of his pores. Now, he was a lawyer by trade, believe it or not, but he was a godly man. <laughs> uh, some might think he's an oxymoron, but that's not true. E.M. Bounds, at least in his case. He offers a lot of powerful insights to his book, Power Through Prayer. Now, I've shared these kinds of things before, but definitely bears repeating here. If we are Christ's disciples, we are his priests, and we are to be people who pray. We have the privilege and we have the responsibility to pray. And here's what Bounds writes. We are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the cause of Christ and to carry on his mission in the world. This trend of the day has a tendency to make the methods, the plans, the organizations more important than people. But God's plan is to make far more of the man, the woman, the young person than anything else. People are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better people. What the church needs today is not more attractiveness to their buildings or programs, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use. Who are they? People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come on programs. He comes on people. He does not anoint plans, but men, women, young people of prayer. It is not great talents, nor great learning, nor great preachers that God desires, but people great in holiness, great in faith, great in love, great in integrity, great for God. People who live holy lives on Sunday mornings and all through the week, these can mold a generation for God. As his followers, we are to imitate the great high priest. As Christ's disciples, let's be a church known as simply, but as but profoundly as people who pray. And let me remind us of our times of prayer, our opportunities for prayer here every week. We have several. Tuesday night, 7 to 8, we come together to pray. We sit in the Lord's presence and we worship Him. And if we happen to get around to 
interceding for others, that's great. But we come together to sit in the Lord's presence and we pray. Sunday mornings, 7.30 to 8, we set aside this sanctuary that God may be welcomed. And let me reissue the challenge I've issued a while ago. We haven't issued it for a while, but what about taking a time every so often instead of sitting in here to in the corporate worship to go to the war room or go outside to pray for the service during the service? To get on your face before the Lord and intercede for God's people as we are in corporate worship. You can do that from time to time. Now, you don't want to do it every week. You don't want to miss the worship all the time. But to do the work of ministry now, you can do this. And not only is the Lord Jesus our great high priest, and we as priests are part of a royal, holy priesthood, the Lord Jesus is also the prophet. That means we are his prophets as well. When we begin to follow Jesus, he automatically enrolled us in his school of the prophets. So what is a prophet? As I mentioned, a prophet is one who speaks the truth of God. As followers of Christ, we proclaim him, the one who spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When we tell others of Christ, are we not speaking of the one who is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the only true and living God except through him? Isn't that who we're talking about and who we're proclaiming? It is a profound thing, the links that the Lord Jesus went to to proclaim the truth. In the early morning hours on the day of his crucifixion, standing before his own people, Jesus unflinchingly proclaimed truth. Humanly speaking, his proclamation of truth spelled his death sentence. Picture the scene. Jesus stood before the religious leaders, many of them. And Mark records the riveting story in Mark chapter 14. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further need do we have of this? We who have heard his blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. But how strange is that last statement? They told him to prophesy. What did he just do? He prophesied. He told the truth about who he is. But his own people rejected the words of the prophet. Capital T, capital P. A few hours later, Jesus appeared before the governor, Governor Pilate. Humanly speaking, Pilate had the authority to condemn him to death or to let him go. Now, Pilate was a weasel, wasn't he? He was concerned for his job and was very interested in knowing as to what Jesus was all about. He demanded to know if Jesus was going to usurp his place as the king, as the leader, political ruler. And Pilate demanded of him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus plainly told them, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate asked him again, so you're a king? And Jesus said, for this purpose, 
I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world. And what was that purpose? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what's truth? And so now with Pilate's heart revealed, and now shaken by Jesus' proclamation of truth, Pilate said to all those around, I find no guilt in him. But that wasn't enough for the angry Jews. And so to appease them, Pilate had him scourged with the dreaded flagellum. This torture alone was enough to kill people and oftentimes did. When they were condemned to be crucified, they did this first. And many people didn't even make it to the cross. But after the flagellum, Jesus once again stood before the governor. And at that point, Jesus could have begged for his life. And Pilate said to him, do you not know I have authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. So Jesus didn't have to die. And it was right there that he could have begged for his life. But he was a man driven by two things. First and foremost, he was and is truth. Second, he had something to prove. He told his disciples as they shared their last meal together, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know something. What is that? That I love the Father. See, Jesus going to the cross was to show the world where he placed his love. For Jesus, the prophet of God, capital T, capital P, could do no other. He was the person who did nothing but proclaim truth. It is this Jesus who proclaimed the truth, regardless of what it cost him. And we're to have the same commitment to him as he had to his father. Motivated by love for him, by the power of his spirit, we are to proclaim truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Help us, Lord. One of my recent musical rediscoveries is a very talented singer named Margaret Becker. You may have heard of her. She sang a song several years ago called Say the Name. And it was several years ago, like I mentioned, that was before the Black Lives Matter crowd say, say the name. So she caught it before they did. Powerful and beautiful, though. These lyrics, let me just share some of them. She puts a heartfelt prayer to music. The part lyrics go like this. May I never grow so strong that my heart cannot be moved. May I never grow so weak that I fear to speak the truth. Then her prayer turns into a declaration, a commitment. I will say this holy name, no matter who agrees, for no other name I know means so much to me. With all the honor I can find, with all my heart, my soul, my mind. I will say the name without defense, without shame. I will always speak the name of Jesus. This is part of what it means to be his prophets, following the prophet. And even today, we have prophets all over the world speaking and living the truth because they follow the one who is the way and the truth and the life. 
these prophets speak loudly and proudly, regardless of who agrees that no one comes to the Father, the only true living God, except through Christ. See, Jesus is the God-man. He is the eternal Son of God made flesh. He is perfect in every way on the human level because he proclaimed truth. He was crucified, was buried, and he was raised on the third day, three days later, and now exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning there. He's begun to do that. And one day he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will reign forever and ever. And as we, his followers, are called to be his prophets, boldly proclaiming his holy name. And we do this no matter who agrees. For no other name we know means so much to us. Is that true? Say the name. Jesus. Say the name. Jesus. Amen. And may we not just say his name. May we wear his name with all the honor we can find, with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, without defense, without shame. For Jesus is absolutely deserving and worthy of our bold proclamation by our lips and by our names. Our God and Father, thank you for the applicability of your word. You are a practical God. You are an organized God. Lord, you put things in place that your people may take care of one another. All for your glory, all for your honor. You set in place your statutes, your rules, not so that you can kind of lord things over us because you can. Indeed, you can, but you don't. You do this for our benefit. You do this for the benefit that you might be glorified throughout the world, throughout the earth. Lord, you did this with your people back in the day in Israel and all the nations around them. They saw, or at least the ideal thing was, for them to see how you are working in the lives of your people and they would want to come and they would want to adopt you as their God. And even now today, Lord, you've called your people in the church to live together in love and unity. You called us to make disciples. You called us to go and proclaim the gospel, the one who is the truth, and the life, and the way. We are called to be priests, to intercede for others. You called us to be prophets, to proclaim the truth, and to live the truth. Lord Jesus, you interceded for your people, and you are doing that even now. Lord, when you were here, you unflinchingly spoke the truth. And Lord, right now, I pray for all of us who know you as Lord and Savior. That you'd help us to come to grips with the reality of the fact that when we began to follow you, you enlisted us. And now you've commanded us to pray. You've also enlisted us and you've commanded us to be your prophets. Lord, may we do this because we love you. May we be as committed to you as you, Lord Jesus, were committed to the Father. And you showed the Father, or you showed the world, that you loved the Father by going to the cross. And so in reality, Lord, when you were on the cross, you didn't have us on your mind. You had your Father on your mind. Help us, Lord Jesus, that regardless of the cost, that we'll proclaim truth. 
regardless of how people treat us, that we will continue praying for them, our friends, our family, even our enemies. So this is what you call us to do. And I pray, Father, that as we have a couple more activities of, of worship, that we will do these things with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, because we love you, because you love us first. We thank you, Father, for these things in Jesus' name.